to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh, oh, oh. Hamilton goes straight on. This is quite appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. What? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unqualified. G is here, and G, I got to tell you, um, in life in general, I'm not validated by my girlfriend. I'm not validated by my employer. I'm certainly not validated by you. But today, I am feeling particularly validated by how quickly some of our preseason predictions have come true, and I am excited to have a 60-minute dunking session uh, on that accord. What say you? Well, Graham, I am glad that you have found at least somewhere to get some validation because I know that was a big void for you and and your life and your own psyche. So, I mean, we're only into episode two of the season and and you already feel that vindicated. So a sign of positive things to come. But first race of the season, hugely exciting, especially, you know, from position three onward, which as we'll talk about, may be the, the norm for the remainder of the season, but lots of speculations and questions throughout testing and, and throughout practice. And this week, many of those questions have been answered, but yet many more still remain unanswered. But before we get into those things, I, I want to make just a, a quick note because, you know, I think while we often acknowledge that this is a what could be perceived as a, a sort of a frivolous hobby or really some petty way to to bolster our own you know fragile egos i reviewed some of our show metrics uh from the last episode and even the prior year and and it turns out that uh while we may not have expected it we we're actually contributing to a, a a bigger purpose a more worthwhile purpose uh and more specifically we are contributing to the Ukrainian war effort. We actually have a few listeners in Ukraine. <laughs> I wouldn't have believed it. I don't know if this is just some VPN <laughs> funny business, but I like to think that we're making people's lives a little bit brighter <laughs> in a place Wait. of such darkness at the moment. Does the does the Podbean analytics tell you the region in Ukraine that they're from? Like, do we know if they're like front lines listens or if they're like center of Kiev? Yeah, if they're like in Donbass or Kiev, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but we did also have some are Russian these, listeners. Are these so... guys a part of the spring offensive? <laughs> it's hard to tell. The analytics don't get that specific. So we're Damn. not sure which side of the war effort we're currently but, contributing to, but, but we yeah, are. But also... If you used a VPN service, there's no way you would pick to emulate a Ukrainian server. So like <laughs> You'd think you'd end up on some questionable some questionable <laughs> government lists, yes. But um Um and look, if I'm gonna be honest, what I think is probably more likely is not that people are listening to it from some level of escapism and enjoyment, but it's probably more likely that it's being used as part of some sort of interrogation effort alongside a Justin Bieber <laughs> discography. So I'm not sure that we should be that um, that excited about it until we receive some additional validation, but I found it interesting nonetheless. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that tidbit. I, I genuinely hadn't looked at the analytics, so uh, last time I checked, we had hit the Netherlands and South Africa, but uh, not Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia are on the map, so... That's great. Uh, great. Wonderful. 
Well, with that being said, let's dive into a real brief race recap. Practice by by all measures was still very ambiguous, but it seemed like in some cases certain teams have had taken a step back from testing, in particular Mercedes and 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 Verstappen, and so that threw up some some question marks. One team that really didn't take a step back in practice was Aston Martin, and going into qualifying, a lot of the grid shaked out uh, as you would have expected, and but most importantly. The hype train pulled into the station with Alonzo in fifth and Stroll in eighth out of qualifying. And on top of that, some other interesting surprises with Hulkenberg in 10th and even Williams scratching at, at Q2 with, with Albon making it and, and Sargent just shy. Uh, Red Bull overall when it came to uh, – and then in, in the race, you know, Red Bull had control early with a 1-2. You know, a little bit of a slow start for Perez, but ultimately making up for it. And then unfortunately, early disappointment for Leclerc this season. He had a few races last season where uh, he, he could ride a little bit of a high, but Ferrari would not allow him that brief bit of enjoyment. DNF from third place. And, and again, Alonso sliding past Russell and Hamilton and Sainz to take the podium and to the point of preseason predictions, I believe one of my predictions was I think Alonzo is going to be the only driver from outside the top three teams to get a podium. Shockingly, I didn't think it was going to be the first race, uh, but again, <laughs> happily surprised to at least be on the, on the right trajectory for you. What was your, what was your first reactions or major reactions and, and key takeaways from this race? Uh, one of the weirder qualifying sessions that I can remember to be totally honest with you. I, maybe I should specifically say Q3 sessions because we literally had two cars on track as the session ended was basically how it felt. Alonzo was in, Leclerc was in. Like there was basically, it was almost as if everybody had given up on pole, um, which I thought was really, really peculiar. Um, I think this one was misbuilt a little bit on social media as potentially a boring race. I, I didn't view it that way at all. I mean, I think if this to you is a boring race, then you better get ready for a boring season because there's going to be two cars out in front basically every weekend and then a bunch of really compelling, entertaining midfield battles, which is what we saw. Um, I don't know what more you could ask for than seeing Alonzo and Hamilton go at it in the midfield. I think that's as good as racing action can get. So, um, yeah, was it the most exciting race I've ever seen? No, but... Um, Considering the relative imbalance in team performance that exists, there's still a lot of really, really compelling action, basically in everybody else but Red Bull. So I think this is it's set up for an action-packed season. So well, and to your point, there is potentially a runaway team at the front, and so yes, to be able to enjoy the remainder of the season, I think you have to have that appreciation for the relative performance from second place through 10th place, you know, or I guess second place and 10th place from a constructor standpoint, because yes, I think you're going to potentially see a pretty crowded top 10 and it's going to be a battle week in and week out for the lower teams. Just try, try to get that, get that last point. Um, but overall, I mean, shocking to see the, the true performance of Aston Martin and they were the big takeaway of the weekend. And we will get to them here in just a moment, even more so than I would have predicted 
uh, even sooner than I would have predicted at the start of the season. Second, as they stand second in the Constructors Championship. What a weird... This is going to be a 45-minute segment on Aston Martin. I'm totally okay with that. I think I could do the whole episode on them and be completely content. Love it. Well, let's uh, let's brush through Red Bull really quick because uh, while you say that, I know we have a proclivity to to dwell here at the at the front of the grid probably more than fans of other teams would prefer us to. But again, Red Bull one two start one two finish. Verstappen ends eleven seconds up the road from Perez. Uh, and, and he was 40 seconds clear of Alonso and 50 of Sainz and Hamilton at race end. Uh, mentioned the, the loss of position by Perez at the start of the race. That sort of eliminated his ability to battle Max as he had to pass Leclerc, but really not unexpected given, as you mentioned, in qualifying, Leclerc sat out a last run in order to preserve a set of new softs. And so that was always sort of going to be the the outcome, I suppose. I, well, we can get to that when we get to Ferrari. I, I really don't understand that strategic move. Like, is there really that much of a difference in, like, takeoff from, like, a scrubbed and an unscrubbed set of softs? I mean, that's essentially what they were trying to do. So, I, I don't know. I mean, it worked, but I think it worked because Leclerc's get-off time was, like, way better than anybody else's. Like, his reaction time, like, when you look at the data, was, like, the best by a significant margin by, like, four to five milliseconds. So, like, I don't. I don't know. Was it really the tires? That seems like a little bit of a gimmicky kind of splitting hair strategy to me. Um, and I've never seen anybody do it before. Obviously, the new qualifying format, you know, probably makes this more likely now. But I I don't know. It seemed weird. Well, and I think part of it probably went down to some level of optimism on behalf of Ferrari. Right. Because if you're expecting Red Bull not to truly be able to run away from you, if you can get Leclerc in front of Perez, then you're giving signs a chance to to attack Perez as well. And now it's a big shakeup in terms of potentially getting 2-3, but I, I think at least what we saw in this race in particular, Red Bull just too strong, primarily from the standpoint of low degradation and being able to maintain a solid pace throughout the entire race, whereas really Ferrari and Mercedes encountered a lot more uh, degradation. And so I, it's almost as though they were never really in it to begin with. And so that strategy was sort of fruitless. These guys are the Death Star this year, man. I mean, I really like, I don't, you know, I hear George Russell say, you know, in an exasperated manner, like they're going to win every race this year. Probably not, but like they didn't set up their car for qualifying pace and they finished one, two in quali. And even, I would say, arguably, Max and Checo got off the line poorly relative to both Ferraris. And Max obviously had enough cushion to, and his teammate helped protect him in some regard, but like Checo got behind Leclerc at the beginning and his engineer just came on the ring. and was like, no worries, man. Like chill. You don't need to get around him. Like last year, if that would have happened, they'd have been like, Checo, you got to get through Charles in the first five laps or like you can kiss this race goodbye, basically. But this year they're like, nope, we know we've got the long run pace. His tires are going to fall off. Just like hang tight. Don't do anything stupid. And we know we're going to be fine. Like that's the level of confidence they have against probably not in terms of race pace, but what most people would have said going into the race was the second fastest car in the grid. Like, that is scary pace. Like, absolutely scary pace. They literally, I, I, Lewis went on the team radio with Bono at the end of the race, and he was like, how many seconds were we off the Red Bulls? And Bono was like, oh, just 51 seconds, Lewis. Like, 51 seconds is an eternity. Like, that is, that is like 
so much further behind than they were at the end of last year. That is like astronomically further behind. Yeah, just, like just I don't a think second people, lap, you know, no big deal. Yeah, like I I don't think people they were almost at parity at the end of last season. And I don't think people realize like how much bigger of a step forward Red Bull has already taken. Like it is scary. And maybe we want to dive in and speak about the relative pace of Perez. I mean, say what you want. Like, he got beat off the line, didn't have a great start, but he recovered it. Max built that gap for the most part while he was behind Leclerc. And then after that, man, like, I get Max was managing, but Perez had great race pace. So, I, there's not a lot of weaknesses in this team right now. So, do you chalk up the deficit of, you know, what was it, 11 seconds at the end of the race? Do you chalk that largely up to being held by, held back by Leclerc? Or do you think there is a a genuine pace difference and and how big do you think it is this year and maybe relative to to where we ended up last year I think there's a genuine pace difference I wouldn't argue against that but I think it's smaller than last year I think Checo once he got through Leclerc was maybe 9 seconds behind and then he ended the race at about 11 and he'd argue had to work arguably had to work his tires harder to get through so I mean yeah clearly Max was managing but um no, I, I think that everything that you see bear out in qualifying in practice tells me that Checo is relatively comfortable with the car. So, but the thing is, man, it's so strong. All they need for him to be able to do is put it within a tenth a lap, a two tenths a lap, even, and he's going to be second in every freaking race. Yep, as long as he doesn't hit a wall. Yeah, I mean, I think where it showed up for me was largely in in qualifying and and the margin there, right? And and I think that's been the deficit the more important deficit that you've seen between Verstappen and Perez, because I think Perez was largely comfortable with the car last year as well, naturally suiting a little bit more of a, you know, uh, an approachable style with understeer. But, but I think the other thing that they've hinted at has been the relative flexibility of this car to accommodate different setups. And therefore, you know, both drivers can, have a type of setup that they're a bit more comfortable with and and optimal for for their styles and so i i think that serves perez uh, well also so with that being said already this season it seems like anytime a reporter has an opportunity to ask perez a question the question is always well basically well why were you behind verstappen and, and do you think you can close that gap and, and for somebody who has to drive against verstappen day in and day out i have to think that that is a maddening question given the you know, the historical talent level that people think Verstappen is at. But I mean, how, how long do you think it takes for them to, to get sick of asking that question and, and hearing the same thing week in and week out? I mean, at some point, man, it's what else are they going to have to ask? Cause if this team is that dominant, they're going to quickly become, I mean, it's weird to say, but like they could easily be the most boring team on the grid this year. If they're really like that far out in front and people are going to stop paying attention to them. And then the question, it's like, what else do you ask in a press conference? Right? Like, but Red Bull's not going to care. I mean, at the perfect, like the perfect scenario is to have a car that's dominant by two tenths a lap by anyone else close, like next closest on the grid. And then a clear number one driver and a number two, who's at least a 10th off the number one. and doesn't ever truly threaten him and risk the team dynamic. Like that's literally exactly what Lewis and Valtteri had for seven years the perfect setup so to me like if red bull can get that similar dynamic out of their carb two driver combo that's like absolute utopia um to the point where like yeah if you're sergio of course you're never going to come out and publicly say like i'm trying to win 
you know, I'm not trying to win the world title because I know Max has already won it, but like, I think he could be a pretty content, well-paid, podium-winning guy and be pretty okay with it at this stage in his career. It'd be another thing if he was like George Russell, but he's not, you know? Well, and and regardless, I think what you've seen with with the likes of Botas, for example, or even DeVries is, you know, we, we talked about this in previous episodes about, well, what would you rather be? Would you rather be a number one driver on a, on a midfield team or a, a clear number two driver on a, on a top tier team? And I think the, the further career success has served those people better who have been number two drivers on really good teams, right? Botas is valued for his perspective that he brings from how Mercedes operates. And DeVries similarly, right? Being associated with the top team gave him credibility to come into AlphaTari. And so, um, you know, I think it's a good place to be to be all around. You get to race at the front and and set yourself up for, you know, a fruitful second half of your career if if they ultimately decide to pull the plug for somebody younger and faster. So how are you feeling? That being said, it seems like you're pretty optimistic on Red Bull. Are, are you also feeling pretty, uh, pretty good about your preseason prediction that they're going to finish the season by a, by a wider margin than, than last year? Uh, I, it's hard to not feel great about that pick, to be honest with you, when you've got another driver in their grid saying they're going to win every race this year. Uh, I don't, I mean, geez, like, is there a better endorsement? No matter how frustrated he was, like he's obviously not going to, something will happen, but like, you don't have to win every race in the season to set a record and they might set some records. So, um, I mean, honestly, the, the most controversial thing about the weekend for Red Bull was the damn ramp of Max trying to get his car onto the into the winner's circle. It looked like my dad trying to change the oil in my mom's car growing up. It's like, like parts flying everywhere. The ramp shot out from underneath the car. Well, I don't understand what they were thinking with that because they had like this aggressive entry angle and then the ramp was only as perfectly as wide as the car itself. So like, what were they expecting him to be able to do i mean you get through this whole clean race only to like you know break a control arm because you can't get up the freaking disco podium ramp dude we need to calm down with these these like sets these like movie sets we're driving cars onto after races like go back to the old like get out of the car hand him a jug of milk spray it everywhere like winter circle days like that's enough for me i don't need all this like high production value shit like i think that Something's lost in the sport when it like literally looks like you're pulling your car into a movie theater. I would much rather than like bring the teams in close and just like spray liquid everywhere. <laughs> well, both. Well, that not only that set, but then you look at the the cool down room as well with like this you know, ambient pink hue. It's like, what is this like a Miami nightclub or some sort of John Wick set? Like, can we just get a normal <laughs> room? Well, isn't there one where they put the car in an elevator? And it goes up to the podium. Isn't that Mexico? Don't they oh, know? I don't even know. It happened last year. I'll, it'll happen again this year. I'll remember the race. But there is another race where the car literally gets driven onto an elevator. And they jack it up like behind the podium. It's like There is such a thing as as doing too much. And I think we are dangerously close to that to that point. There's a there's like a, there's like some bodywork engineer on each team that's just like sweating their ass off that <laughs> entire time. He like shot that ramp out and that guy was like, "Oh my god, like he literally cracked the floor during the celebration." When he was so <laughs> like so cautious about it too, but there was just there was no way. The math didn't yeah, the well, math didn't he, make and then sense. He gunned it. <laughs> he got stuck on it. Was better than like teetering on two wheels <laughs> just like he beached the car. <laughs> 
Oh man. Anyway, One hell of a way to end right. a, a season opener. Um, yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's close the book on on the world drivers champion and constructor champion Red Bull team right now. Uh, let's move on to something a bit more surprising. Aston Martin, strong in testing, strong through practice, showed up in qualifying, and then in the race, truly delivered. There was speculation, even from Sam Collins, that maybe it was fuel load differences and everybody was running more fuel. It wasn't real. I was skeptical as well, but at the end of the day, Alonzo, basically two tenths off of signs in qualifying and three tenths off Leclerc, uh, but ultimately better race pace than than Mercedes and Ferrari. Largely, it seems chalked up to tire degradation, but I mean, even you know through entry and and exiting, you saw the car seemingly have better traction, better braking, better performance all, albeit seemingly with lower top speed and thus some unconventional passes by Alonso, which were fascinating to watch. Credit to him for for improvising and setting up the sort of signs pass by going one way on Hamilton on one turn and and the opposite on signs on the next. So I mean true true expert skill there. The, the hype train has been realized. What's your reaction as a, as a little bit more of an avid proponent than myself through, throughout testing and, and practice? Uh, this is why I love F1, because I, you know there's probably 700 employees at Aston Martin Racing now, and I bet you less than 10 of them are truly responsible for the success of this car design. And in this current era of regulation, it seems to just be a very aero-driven success or fail, pass or fail. And Dan Fallows and whoever he brought with him from Red Bull clearly just understand the aerodynamic philosophy of this era of regulations. And it is wild to me that as a team, you can be completely lost in the wilderness the first year of regulations, hire the right couple people, throw all of what you had before away and come back with arguably the second best car in the grid in four months. That is crazy. Like they, they they buy their gearbox, their rear suspension and their engine from Mercedes and they use their wind tunnel. And in four months they built a car that will do laps around the works Mercedes. That is effing insane. That's what like, that is why construct th- like this is why constructors championships are better than spec series a thousand times over. This is why because you have the complexity of you hired the right four engineers who had the right idea about ground effects and how to implement it in a way where you could maximize downforce and get great balance in the car and not have too much drag and they just like somebody somebody on Dan Fallow's team found the equilibrium and and that person gets it better than anyone and Aston Martin hired him good for them like that is why I love this constructor series I can't I I love it like underdog story yes but also it's like just freaking R&D versus R&D man and they hired the right people and they got it so well as somebody who has a uh a modest amount of professional success. I'm, I'm curious from an institutional perspective, but then also from a... Talking about yourself? Uh, 
<laughs> I, no, I wouldn't have been so I wouldn't have been so positive <laughs> in talking about my own career success. I have basically flatlined at this point. Um, but <laughs> but from a from an institution's perspective, and then from like an aspiring professional's perspective, you know the decisions that Aston Martin made, and, and sort of the decisions and approach that Dan Fallows made, like. I guess what what are your lessons learned or or your key takeaways that you think other teams should uh, should be drawing from from these observations? Spend more money. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. Like write bigger checks and then maybe really smart people will come work for you. <laughs> like that's the basic observation. All right, so that was Lawrence that was Lawrence Stroll's strategy. He was like I'm going to come into an industry where talent is identifiable and valuable like i can i can compute a value for engineering talent and i'm gonna write checks until i can get it for myself and he brought it in and i you know i have another theory that this is kind of exposing to some degree which is i think that the 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 nucleus of of mercedes sustainable advantage over the dominance that they had for turbo hybrid was was primarily this isn't a new idea but like I think it was more heavily dependent on engine performance versus car and aero and chassis performance than people really realized. Like the fact that Red Bull arguably had a more aerodynamically efficient car for most of the era, but never had the engine, I think holds some weight now because now you've got arguably better engine parity across the grid and aero and chassis design in a more aerodynamically complex era are starting to win the day from an engineering standpoint more than they did earlier in the turbo hybrid era. And I think we're exposing some lack of aerodynamic expertise that maybe has existed within Mercedes. They also lost some people to Aston that got poached. So there could be a lot of different factors, but like, yeah, man, like maybe Aston is going to be better at aero than Mercedes in this era because they have better people. It's possible. Like they're spending the money required to do that. Well, I think it totally agree. And I think it's largely about understanding what discipline and and what, yeah, what discipline is going to be the differentiator, right? And to your point, engine performance and probably more of like the mechanical elements of car setup, right? And chassis design, right? It was much more in the mechanical space, whereas this is because of the ground effect, focus is so much more aerodynamically oriented, right? And you saw Red Bull with the aerodynamic efficiency, even in the prior era um, with Adrian Newey and Dan Fallows working on multiple sort of ground effects concepts. And so they had that domain and discipline more advanced. And so you, you saw sort of Honda somewhat close that gap from the engine performance, and then they had the next the next discipline. And so I think from an institution's perspective, it's all about recognizing, well, what is the next discipline on the horizon that's going to be the source of like differentiation? It, it, I think that's very well said. And in 2026, when the engine regulations change, engine performance will probably be the primary source of differentiation. Well, and I'm curious about the fuels. I don't know... Trust me, I don't know all the complexities of like what is the range of possibilities when it comes to the synthetic fuels, but I think you could find chemical engineering as potentially more of the like differentiating yeah. discipline. So I think people will probably do that through fuel partners more than they will like their own IP, just because fuel is such a different field of research than mechanical oh, engineering. Sure, but, sure. Um, but then that partner matters, and what is that discipline that matters? I mean, and looking at similar to Alonzo's decision, right? Of 
well, what is this team doing? He recognized, I think, the core competency that was required to be successful and saw Aston Martin investing in those right resources and yeah, to make that move. 100%. But what were you saying about the the sort of fuel suppliers and Ferrari? Well, that's what Ferrari hangs their hat on is that shell partnership, right? So like that's, you know, the source of a lot of their incremental performance gains. But I, I'll tell you, like you have not infrequently, and I, 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 I got to bring this up, have not infrequently gushed about the fighter jet inspired aerodynamic design that the Mercedes and its crazy ass side pods takes on. Well, I got news for you, buddy. Tom Cruise is not about to hop in that cockpit and fly <laughs> that thing over the enemy and drop bombs. Like all four wheels are staying on the ground. So sorry. Like maybe a fighter jet wasn't the most effective thing to be inspired by in car design. Like Mercedes fans just need to kind of come to terms with the fact that like you no longer have a superior engine and you may have just flat out designed a really bad car aerodynamically that is like flawed in some very foundational ways and maybe just like start over like the Aston Martin leap in performance dude they were two and a half seconds faster on their fastest lap in Bahrain qualifying than they were at the Bahrain qualifying the year before two and a half seconds is an eternity on a on an F1 track like, that is so damning for Mercedes. Like, so unbelievably damning. Well, some estimates are showing, you know, Res- Red Bull gaining a second year over year. And so, yeah. had they not made the the those gains, you could see Aston Martin battling for first place at, at this point. Oh, 100%. But, hold on, let me, go, let me go back for a moment. I am not ready to fully relinquish my support of the <laughs> fighter jet inspiration. However... It is an interesting possibility that you do take a very valid inspiration from a a high-performing corollary, but there's different dynamics that don't necessarily translate, and then therefore that inspiration doesn't translate either in that different context. And and so we'll touch on Mercedes a little bit more um, in in a moment. But I'm sorry, I couldn't hear anything you said because all I could hear in my ear was just like that that Will Ferrell, Ricky Bobby <laughs> quote of "Help me, Tom Cruise, help me, Oprah Winfrey," just looping in my head. Like I, <laughs> that's all I heard. So anyway, sorry, we were moving on. Well, and I think the other point of from like a career perspective is, you know, I think oftentimes people you'll see people who have a measure of success and and then want to extrapolate that into the next level of success. But I think what you saw with the relationship with like Adrian Newey and Dan Fallows is an extended partnership, an extended learning period, multiple iterations of success. And so it's almost like trusting that you're developing that right skill set so that when you do actually get a chance to launch into that next level and extrapolate what you've learned from, first of all, find the right people, find the best, whoever's doing it in whatever field. And then be comfortable spending a submission, sufficient amount of time with those people to truly absorb all of the lessons that you can so you don't get launched prematurely with these high expectations because you worked for some short period of time with these really great people, only to not truly be able to like translate that into like a, a comparative level of success. Can I ask you another Aston question that's going to change the topic? Please. <laughs> was Lance Stroll was Lance Stroll impressive? Did is what he did Sunday with his potentially injured wrist impressive? I feel like this is a bait question for me. I'm just asking. I want to know your opinion. Well, one might ask, does the the relative impressiveness 
depend on his injury or not. In and of itself was an let's, impressive performance. Let's, as, let, let's assume he was pretty substantially injured. Put conspiracies aside. Let's assume he was as injured as they said he was. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And we are quick to quick to dunk on him whenever the opportunity presents itself which also did at multiple points in this race. So let's not let's not forget to to mention those <laughs> things. But like turn 4. I mean, turn 4 uh running into Alonzo formation lap running off the track. Uh yes, there was some <laughs> strolls being doing stroll things early in the race. But really from the time of practice through qualifying through the race even if he wasn't injured he's performing at a high level and putting the car up largely as well as you would expect. And so I think as much shit as we and others give him, like he's learned, he's matured and he's done a really good job in the first race of the year. That being said, you should probably, I think that's, I think the story could have been like dramatically different if turn forward <laughs> goes the other way and who knows what sort of parallel <laughs> like parallel dimension that you put this whole dynamic off to. Um, but like Alonzo was very glowing of Lance after the race. And I just, I find it a bit hard to believe uh, that, that they would have been so cordial had, had that contact ended with a puncture and a front wing damage on, on stroll, putting them both out of contention. Dude, Alonzo called him his hero on team radio. He knows who writes the checks. I mean, is that, okay, but is that what it is? Because let's just step back for a second. Fernando Alonso has been, for basically the entirety of his career since the early 2000s, has been accused of being, like, a toxic team culture driver. Like, not a good teammate, like an absolute asshole. He and Lewis still don't like each other for the one year they spent as teammates at McLaren. Like, <laughs> one year. Like, how do you go from, like, that guy who's never given a damn about anyone to somebody who's willing to call cheese dick Lance Stroll, daddy's boy, his hero on team radio. You're suggesting that he's that much of a sellout. That's why he would say it. I, I, no, don't I, I think more genuinely what it is, is, is success breeds positive relationships. And I think mm. probably at this point in his career to, and especially one which is so regularly condemned for being full of bad career moves to teams who are on the downhill. I think I, I have to assume that the possibility in his mind that he's made a good decision and almost a historically good decision has got to leave him feeling a bit euphoric. And I, I, I don't know that he has like a negative word to say about anyone or or anything within the team at at this point and so i think it's probably just pure like joy and euphoria to realize like this isn't a total fuck up decision at least as of as of race one i don't think it's that i think it's the same thing that makes lewis call valtteri his best teammate ever which is just that he's not threatened by him yeah, you until know? he runs into the back of him and fucks <laughs> up his race. <laughs> well, that's not necessarily being threatened. That's like being annoyed and frustrated 
You know, it's not being, it doesn't make you threatened. So do you think, do you think there was a contentious relationship with Okan at times because he was threatened or because he was pissed off with Okan doing, you know, and and their little kerfuffles? I think it was probably a combination of both, but it was also like just more general frustration with the fact that he knew he was faster than Okan, but couldn't demonstrate it in points because his engine blew up literally every other race. So it was probably a lot of general frustration outpoured that wasn't even specifically directed at Oka. Well, again, which would largely say having just a, a general level of of failure makes Euphoria, someone more aggressive. So right. I think it's I think it's uh, yeah, part. Yeah. It would be part of both. But yes, probably having a clear distinction between a number one and a number two driver certainly puts one at ease, and you're happy gloating about the person who you know can't truly challenge you, but. So that being said, do you think that changes if if once Stroll's um, quote unquote injured wrists uh, <laughs> heal and and he starts to truly rival Alonso? Do you think that dynamic no, I, changes? I certainly don't think he can match him on racecraft. I don't think he can match him in single lap pace. Uh, they'll build the tendencies of the car towards Alonso's driving style. Um, he, you know, Stroll might get a podium at some point. Um, he'll be around. He'll be con- maybe consistent. But uh, no, I just we're talking about okay. Again, zoom out on Alonzo for a second. Putting the championship count. So in terms of like, how do you determine the goat in a sport? The most basic metric is count of championships, which is like I get it. I don't. I. I I'm not like saying that that is not correct. If you put that aside as a measuring stick, there are a lot of people that believe on just pure racer quality that Fernando Alonso is the best driver that's ever lived. Above Schumacher, above, I don't know if people would put him above Senna because he's kind of another echelon in terms of just like the wow factor. But like Alonso has probably made the worst team switching decisions at the worst time. And he's lost at least three driver's championships on the final weekend. And he and he won two. And then he retired and came back. And he's won in, like, a bunch of other categories. He's won, like, two 24-hour of Le Mans. Like, this guy has the pedigree, has a lot of bad luck and some bad team decision-making, but, like, genuinely has the pedigree to, to sit and say he could be one of the best people to ever step behind the wheel of a racing car. Like, no freaking way is Lance Stroll gonna gonna match this guy's race pace sorry like just sorry even if he's like a decently okay driver he can't touch him there's just no chance i don't know man i think i might be a stroll believer no you're not <laughs> you're full of it yeah you can't hold a straight <laughs> however inversely when you talk about like a number one being paired with a clear number two at the same time while it must suck to have to go against vettel and alonzo back to back at the same time there's really no looking bad for him either like, to your point, okay, Alonso's the greatest driver of all time. Stroll's half a second off in qualifying. Well, shit, he's, yeah. he's the best driver of yeah. all time. So, like, he's fine. Neither driver yeah. is, like, in a lose-lose unless no, that right. order distorts itself. And then, hell yeah, Stroll's the man and put some big questions on, on Alonso. But, I, yeah, similar to you, I'm not expecting that to happen. But all being said, f- fair play to, to Stroll, toughing it out, going through the pain clearly compromised um, in practice, still qualified well, raced well. So you got to respect, you got to respect that. To your, to your mention a second ago, what do you think Vettel's thinking right now? 
I mean, yeah, it's, it's probably a little bit of disappointment for sure. Um, I mean, you have to hope you made he made a career decision predicated on more things than just relative car performance at the moment. There's other life factors outside of that. But yeah, I mean, racing in the back half versus the front half is probably part of the consideration. So yeah, it probably stings a little bit. But I, I'm left wondering how much of Vettel's time on the team contributed to the development because you did see a lot of progress at the end of last season where they were in the points pretty consistently. And so do you contribute to that or was it, it, it does seem like a, a complete step change. And so I don't know that he can say, oh, I invested all that and now look where they are. It was, he didn't, it, it was almost like he, he had enough apathy about the sport that he wasn't really invested maybe in understanding where was the team going right? What was on the horizon and whether or not he wanted to be a part of that. It seemed like that decision was probably already, already made, made up. So hopefully he's not, he's not regretting it too much. Um, one, one note just on, on Stroll's injuries. I mean, you saw him having (laughs) obsessed with this man. (laughs) God dang it. We started the season opening episode with a segment on his hand. Like, and now look, Callback. It's a great through line will. here on the uh, the drama, man. You got to find your themes. Um, but do you think the FIA, so given his like awkward manipulation of the wheel, his inability to like get out of the car on his own after practice, are you surprised that the FIA didn't didn't step in uh, at all and 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 sort of enforce that he he shouldn't be driving that weekend? So generally, and on whose this pockets podcast. had to be lined to stifle so- that sort of. <laughs> Talk about leading questions. Uh, so uh, generally on this podcast, we tend to gravitate towards the low government, no government side of the spectrum, which in general is going to make me view a question of should the FIA be more heavy handed in assessing driver fitness for, you know, car and driver safety reasons going to make me generally say no. But with an issue with the wrist where you could kind of like very specifically see a driver like letting go of the wheel to try and alleviate pain, (laughs) like going into certain turns. Again, not a big FIA guy here, but like, that's kind of a big deal. Like, you know, like, and I'm not here to propose that he hit Alonzo in turn four because of his wrists. Like, obviously, you know, unless his left ankle was hurt too. Maybe well, I was going to say they started hinting at the that. Brakes. They started hinting at that, <laughs> yeah. which made me wonder about like how genuine is the injury? Like the more he slides down the order, they just crop up new. Well, it was his wrist and his ankle and his, yeah, and he has a spinal a injury. Bleed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got a hematoma. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know, dude, but, uh, I think in general, it's a bit ridiculous that you can get black and yellowed for two inches of carbon fiber flapping off the edge of your front wing. But you can also enter into a race as a driver with a broken wrist, and like it's not really a conversation. And I, we, I guess we, there may be like pre medical screening stuff that you and I aren't privy to, but like I'll be damned if that's not as strict as the stuff they're putting carbon fiber parts through on the track. That just seems a little bit imbalanced. Well, a lot of things you'll hear too is, oh, well, they do their tests like kind of just at the start of a session where you need to get out of the car in in a certain amount of time. And I just find it kind of odd that they don't like do that. I don't think they do that at like the end of a, of a practice session. 
for example. And so you'd almost think you'd want to do it after some sort of more like rigorous stint in the car as though you were driving half or two thirds of a race before an incident happened. Right. Cause people yeah. talk about, Oh, like you'll have hydration loss and fatigue and all of this stuff. And so that's when he couldn't get out of the car was after that practice session and need to be helped out. So yeah, yeah it's, um, it's pretty interesting. All right. I, uh, in recognition of time and we're good on our promise of doing a 45 minute segment on Aston Martin. So congratulations on that, on that mission accomplished. Uh, well, a 30 minute segment on Lance Stroll and a 50 minute segment <laughs> on the rest of the scene on the team. The man deserved right, it. He just got out of the 12 days ago. He had surgery. I mean, we, for God's sakes, we have eight teams left. I would like to propose that we cherry pick three of them to do deep dives on. All right. I think that's fair. I think let's do Mercedes. Let's do Ferrari and, um, and then dealer's choice, whatever you want after that. I'd like to uh, put in an official submission for Alpine, but mostly for Ocon. So we could talk about (laughs) deal the cumulative 45 seconds worth of penalties (laughs) deal. All right. So I I think we've touched on a Mercedes a little bit, but Again, largely seem to take a step backwards after testing. Neither driver seem as happy. Sixth and seventh in qualifying, largely on pace with Alonzo. Uh, Hamilton gained a position off the line because of that contact with with Stroll and Alonzo, but ultimately both drivers losing out, finishing behind Alonzo and Signs, albeit still third in constructors because of Leclerc's DNF. But uh, really, while Hamilton was a little bit positive after the race, given some of the excitement of the the on-track battles, you hinted at it earlier, Russell basically uh, saying, maybe we should just pack it in for this year already, start looking to next year, Red Bull's going to win every race, which admittedly I find a bit odd given at the start of the season, he had even said, look, the the season isn't won in the first five races. I mean, look at last season, what we were talking about after the first two, three, four races. And as Ferrari was pulling away with both championships. Right. So I guess what's your overall takeaway from, from Mercedes, the, the, the feeling in the team and and where do you think that's going to lead them in terms of that development direction? It seems like you're ready to throw the, the fighter inspiration in the, in the dustbin, but um, maybe elaborate on that a little bit. It's easy to speak in extremes after an opening weekend like this. I'm going to resist the urge to do so. I think if you're a Mercedes fan, there's still a lot of reasons to feel positively. Um, it is concerning that they don't seem to have really stepped forward in the offseason and find themselves basically back at the margin they had to Red Bull at the beginning of last year. So, um, you know, reasons to be positive, though. I think you still have the two best drivers on the grid. I, I genuinely believe that and will continue to. Um, the two best? The best Sorry, the best combo, uh, driver combo on the grid. Yes, okay. Best pairing. Uh, and arguably a team from a money and a talent standpoint should win the most improved kind of player card in terms of their development quality throughout the season. They have more wind tunnel time than they're accustomed to um, and are going to be battling porpoising for l- less time within the season. So, like, you have reasons to be optimistic, but, like, it's that classic mantra of, okay, great, but not everybody else is sitting on their hands. So, you know, realistically, do I think Mercedes can become the second best team on the grid by the end of the season and would I bet on them to do so? Yes, I would still bet on them to outperform Aston Martin and Ferrari over the long term of the season, mostly based on pedigree, you know. Uh, shame on me for that, but like, yeah, I, pedigree still means something. 
But at the end of the day, guys like George Russell and Lewis Hamilton aren't racing for second. And when you see a Red Bull streaking that far out ahead, yeah, man. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people felt this way when they were racing against, you know, Vettel in 2012, 2013, Schumacher during most of the late 90s, early 2000s, that year that Hackenden won and McLaren. I mean, they were untouchable for most of the year. These seasons happen in F1 once or twice a decade, and we might just be looking at one of those. And I'm sure that is a shitty pill to swallow, but like you might as well go ahead and get it down the hatch and move on. That's kind of my view. Yeah, I mean, they're neck and neck with Ferrari and Aston Martin, but that's not the target. And they're clearly a ways behind Red Bull. And I think largely it's just surprising given the rate of development last season where you thought, wow, these guys are coming. And if the season started right now, I'd pick them probably to win at this point. And it just seems like there was no progress in the offseason. And both them and Ferrari lost pace to Red Bull and Aston Martin. Uh, And so they're going to have to get it together quickly. All right, let's jump on to Ferrari. So they seem to look good all weekend, (laughs) albeit behind Red Bull, right? I don't think that was surprising at all. Um, But, and they look strong in qualifying at a 3-4, which you know, to your point of being able to open up a bigger gap for Red Bull this year than last year, you saw last year qualifying was the point of strength for Ferrari and already race one, they don't have a comparative advantage over Red Bull in that area. They they didn't try. <laughs> they didn't try. They pulled their guy for his last lap in Q3. So it's like, I, it's, I'm sorry. I can't get over that. That was such a, a weird So you think strategy. you think they had a chance still to, to be the superior qualifying car? I mean, I think it would have been close. Like, most likely Red Bull puts it on pole. But you heard the Red Bull drivers in the qualifying debrief. They were like, yeah, we honestly weren't expecting to be on pole. Because we didn't set the car up for it. Well, and I think that was the dynamic a lot of last season, though, right? As they squeaked out yeah. some poles, but a lot of them went to Ferrari because they knew they had a superior race setup. So, so in a way, they rationalized the move to put Leclerc out. So they saved him unscrubbed soft tires so that he could get off the line better and potentially split the Red Bulls at the start, which is exactly what happened. Ended up being kind of a moot point to the overall race, but like that was their goal, was to gain track position on one of the Red Bulls. But I don't know why on that accord you also wouldn't be equally, if not more, motivated to give him a shot at getting track position through the qualifying time. Like, they had, they had to have just accepted internally that they weren't going to out-qualify Red Bull, which I just, I think is a bit premature. So you're saying you could have gotten the position one way or another. Why did you yeah, hold off on the race? I th- yeah, maybe he doesn't out-qualify Verstappen, but he definitely could have out-qualified Perez. Yeah, that's a like, good point. I, I, like, I don't know why you would... Yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think there was really a lot of incremental. There was nothing incremental to be gained. And I mean, everything that happened thereafter made it a moot, right? Like they replaced the energy store before the race. So they already were going to take an allocation for that. And then the damn engine blows up during the race. So it's like, you know, same shit, different season. So it doesn't really matter. Well, I don't know that we can truly count that as a strategic blunder, uh, as we as no. we estimated, you know, two to three. God, races. it smells like one though. It, it's a it hint of one like for sure. One. We'll have to put that to the committee and let them review. I, I, I'm not convinced <laughs> that we're the final opinion on that. Well, so they had that. Then they had some replacement parts, some electric components before the race, and then engine reliability issues. Presumably, not the 
sort of combustion engine, but some sort of accessory part. Given all of that, you know, how do the cumulative events of the weekend lead you to perceive Ferrari and their potential this year? You feeling any better about them or? No, definitely not better. I think Bonato is somewhere in the Dolomites, you know, smiling subtly just because it's like, yeah, I mean, Vassar's got his work cut out for him. Like there's some pretty deep rooted issues within this team that are preventing them from being good that he's got to figure out that are clearly still there. Um, you know, I saw all the F1 Twitter memes about like the, um, the, the, uh, what's the guy, Gunther Steiner quote about saying he was excited about the Ferrari engine this season. It was going to be a bomb. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, improper. Yeah. Maybe you should have chosen a different word, <laughs> different yeah, word choice. It's going to be a bomb. All right. <laughs> yeah, like, well, and, and yeah, not good. It's even more frightening when you compare it to the context of last season in which they started so strong and then still fumbled and and Leclerc starting on such a high only to end the season so dejected. And I don't know that it spells spells many good things when race one Leclerc starting so dejected. And look, you, you kind of fault them for, you know, you can't feel bad after the first race. Look at Red Bull and race one, but given the track record that the man has been subjected to, I, I think we can cut him some, some slack for feeling a little down for, you know, losing a podium in, in such a fashion. So yeah, we will, uh, they're sitting third now. We'll, uh, or fourth now we'll see, we'll see if they can recover from that. All right. So you have Alfa Romeo after them. Thanks to a, a great drive from, from Botas, you know, look, Botas and Joe qualified back to back 12th and 13th, but it was really a, a story of two starts. Botas got a great jump off the line. What happened to what happened we're, to we're our quick, We're quick. No questions. This is just quick update. Okay, fine. Fo- fine. So story of, of two starts. Botas quick off the line. I think getting four passes on lap one. Meanwhile, Joe slow off the line. And and he was passed by Albon, Sargent, and Piastri out of the gate. And so, uh, you know, that pretty much sealed it from there on out. Uh, with that being said, now we will move to Alpine. They were sort of the the big mystery throughout testing and practice. Looked far weaker um, than probably many people expected at the end of last season, myself included. And again, the race weekend was a bit of a tale of of two halves with Gasly struggling in qualifying and and ultimately having a good race, climbing from last up into the points. Meanwhile, Ocon uh, qualified well in ninth place, so the the total opposite, only to end the race as, as one of the, was one of the DNFers. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to your, your choice selection and, and where, what commentary do you have on this team? What, what jumped out to you and why are you so eager to, to spend more of our precious time on, on the team that you so deeply loathe? I think that Ocon embodied the phrase in a way we've never seen an F1 today, uh, till today, bad day at the office. I mean, this was truly a day to forget, and I I just, in honor of how truly bad this race was for him, I want to do a a reading, a chronological reading of the order (laughs) of events as experienced For his cumulative 35 seconds, I believe, of penalties, right? Yeah, 35 seconds of building. All right, so. From the top. Race start. From the top, race start. Loses two positions in the first corner. Well, no, no, you missed the first one already. He set up out, he, he, he. No, 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 no. 
I'm going. I'm going to go back. Oh, there. okay. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go back there. Would you let me do my second? I thought you said chronological. God. I don't know. Damn it. <laughs> this is the way you prepped something, huh? I'm surprised. Lo- <laughs> I didn't realize you came prepared. All right, please. Read the notes. <laughs> Loses two positions in the first corner. Hit from behind by Hulkenberg, which obviously wasn't his fault. Gets a five-second time penalty after the FIA reviews the race start for being out of position at the race start because his tires were too far to the inside outside of the actual box. Pit crew resumed working on the car too quickly while he was attempting to serve that five-second time penalty. Four-tenths of a second too quickly. Four-tenths of a second too quickly. So as he's left the pit box back on the track, he gets a 10-second time penalty for improperly serving his five-second time penalty. Then he immediately turns back to come into the pits to serve the 10-second time penalty and gets another penalty for speeding down the pit lane by .01 miles per hour past the target line. So yes, you heard that right. He got a penalty while serving a penalty for incorrectly serving a penalty. <laughs> have you have you gone back and listened to his whole team radio? I Admittedly, no, I haven't, but I think I if I was in that car, I think my team radio would be the most expletive-ridden track of of all time. Yeah, I can imagine dude. just getting the constant radio message of, of one punitive act after another. This is basically the equivalent, oh, you know I love golf, just hit, of hitting a triple bogey, but doing it on one of those par threes at like a charity tournament where they're doing like a fundraiser on the tee box, and you like refuse to donate, and then you step up to the tee and they hit like a sleeve of balls into the water with like the, the charity worker watching you. It's like the most embarrassing not speaking from experience by the way there's like few things more shameful than the sequence of events i I, i've never seen anything it's almost like a just because you're on the golf analogy it's almost like a tin cup moment right he's like he just keeps going like fuck it give me another one i'm just gonna go for the (laughs) drive fuck it he's already like plus five it doesn't matter just go for it (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was, it was God. I love oh, poor guy. See, that's why I just like people saying this was a boring race. God, it was a boring race if you were only paying attention to the top two cars. Like there were so many just interesting, funny, wacky, unusual things going on down the grid, and I think that's what's great about F one is like, yeah, you got twenty cars, and like the two that are leading aren't the only ones that matter. So, anything else to add? I I I almost feel like while you while you while you veil this commentary and this this sense of intrigue at what happened, I, I think you're just gleeful at the the pain and suffering of the all French team at this point. Let me let me say something nice about like in general, I think that Alpine's relative performance as a team and the strength of their car was more understated during this race than any other team because of the weird sequence of events for Ocon and then how poorly and out of position Gasly was at the start of the race. But I think if you look at their car performance objectively, I don't think they're really in a bad spot at all. I think they just kind of had a, just a bad weekend. Um, yeah, agreed. Gasly's performance shows that the car has pace. It didn't break down. It didn't have reliability issues. Uh, more so just <laughs> general driver and communication. And is to- is there a better team for this type of misfortune to unfold on? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I I loved it. I was eating it with a freaking spoon. But yeah, I would agree with you. I, I think they still sit pretty well behind now, not only the top three, but arguably with Aston in, in four, assuming that performance continues. And then 
just to close out the teams in the points, I think you just got to give a quick nod to, to Williams. I put him at the back. I believe you put him at the back. Um, or actually ninth, maybe, right? You had AlphaTari all the I way at ninth. the back. So yeah, I, I you're looking pretty ninth. on, yeah, on that one as well. Pretty... I Hold on. Wait a minute. Did my... Yeah, let's, okay, let's not delve too... thought... We'll do a mid-season check-in. Let's... <laughs> but I think you saw a, a decent qualifying. Both drivers made up multiple positions on the start. And for having a rookie driver, albeit it was a difficult qualifying for all of the rookie drivers uh, basically going out in, in Q1... Sargent was the top of that heap in what one would have thought was the worst car in, in which there were, there were rookies driving. And so I think overall, you got to give him, him a shout out for, for this weekend and, and getting a solid start. Big time. Couldn't agree more. I, you know, he didn't do anything remarkable, but he also didn't do anything unremarkable. Um, which, you know, is about all you can ask for on your opening weekend when your car is already kind of behind the eight ball. So can we, (laughs) I feel like I know what I said earlier about the whole we're going to blow through these. Grim, at what at what point did you genuinely think we were going to get through can all I, this in just, under an hour? Just, you know it was never like, going to happen. Let, I think we can get through McLaren kind of quickly by just answering this one basic question. Which all is, right, let's have it. Who on the constructors' table is McLaren going to be able to beat? Who who are they going to be able to beat, Gerald? I, I can't, as I sit here today, look at either of the teams that finish lower than them, lower, as in the other non-point scores. Being Haas and Alphatari. I who which of those teams would you bet odds on that they're able to beat in the constructor standings this season? I'm not giving them the nod over anybody. It, I mean, this is like with any degree of confidence? No. If I do, it's it's only because I have a high degree of faith in Norris, and I think you could put them both above Haas and and Alphatari because DeVries being a rookie, and I, I think Norris heads up beats beats Sonoda as well. And and you ask this question offline about well, could it have gone worse? I mean, yeah, they could have crashed into each other. Um, at least Lando acknowledged that the team got like really good pit stop practice. Um, but yeah, outside of this, I mean, I feel like this weekend was as bad as it could have been. You basically had a a double DNF for, for all intents and purposes. And so I think there is only, they can only go up from here, but from the standpoint of having still seemingly relative weak performance and all of these reliability issues, yeah, it's it's not looking it's not looking good. Yeah, and a team who has arguably less resources than you over the last six months of develop and development and Aston Martin has literally just leapfrogged you. So yes, and, and I think all of that is fair, and and those are valid criticisms. But I think we are forgetting one of the the under talked about and and arguably an even more important aspect of the car design and and it was the it was the approval of McLaren to be able to use the smart screen livery displays so that they could rotate through android labeling oh. hashtags and logos in what appears to be basically just a screen on your Kindle um so let's <laughs> let's put the the meager performance issues aside 
really, really a big win for chief marketing officer, Zach Brown. That, that, yeah, ad guy, hashtag ad guy. That revenue is going to show up on the track in a couple weeks. Just, you just wait. (laughs) Oh, you think they just did this willy nilly? (laughs) No, no, no. they are, they got, they are padding. They are padding the coffers, my friend, and you are going to see that pay dividends. Maybe not next race, maybe not the race after, maybe not Uh, even this season, but eventually those displays will pay. I I honestly wouldn't be shocked to see an FTX ad stream across the front of that thing at some point this season. I mean, if any team's going to do it now, it would be them. Yep, there it is, (laughs) yep. Also, what I don't understand about that whole thing is you see the digital marketing displays of like Rolex around the the one of the turns wouldn't it just be easier to do that and just do like digitally imposed displays why are we going like it's basically just your kindle screen so i mean this isn't like i know i'm confused by the Uh, and you're not going to convince me that that kindle screen is is not 10x the weight of the paint layer that it could be in its place so clearly they have completely given up on car performance so or or the wrong people are steering the ship on car design over there at McLaren, i.e. the marketing guys have a say, which is pretty telling, to be honest. Seems, seems about right. Seems Nobody else is doing that shit, and that's probably all you need to know. Nobody has dropped that many places in relative performance season over season, so seems to be a correlation. All right. Quick closeout. Haas, long story short, good in qualifying, tough in the race. Hulkenberg qualified well, but had a bad start. Um, Unfortunately, that is not a formula for long-term success. So uh, without two years of preceding development, it looks like they may not keep pace. And then AlphaTauri, yeah, difficult to to draw anything of, of value other than Sonoda finishing, you know, you know, knocking on the door of, of points, um, you know, Started in 14th, looked at 11th, and and DeVries moved up a couple positions genuinely from like I think 19th to 14th. So, look, there's some pace in the car. Let's see what they can extract full season. But yeah, unfortunately, a little bit of a, a disappointing start for DeVries, as as I said, as well as all of the all of the rookies. But I think not a huge surprise for Sargent where where he started out. Two quick comments here. One is. How does Mick Schumacher feel watching Hulkenberg gap Magnuson and qualifying like that? Not great. Yeah, not uh, a great look. Not a great look at all. Uh, and then the second is, I don't have any general comments on Alphatari's team performance, but I do got to say, I like Nick DeVries' attitude on team radio. How so? He talks to his team and his engineer like he's been there before and that like, he demands a very high standard from them and he's not afraid to show he's like got the very classic, like Dutch bluntness that like Max does as well. To some degree, he lands the plane a little softer than Max, but like, you know, he's like very upfront about when he thinks things aren't working. And I think some of that's indicative of just his general age. He's not like a true rookie, but like, I respect somebody that's willing to step into a new team, not be disrespectful, but also have confidence to say like, yeah, this thing's clearly not working and I'm giving you feedback and you guys need to be better. You know? Like, well, I think it goes like, to that lesson learned of, you know, with respect to sort of career advancement, right? Yeah. As I think people often think, oh, younger, higher is better, but not necessarily, right? He's had several roles where he's gotten to learn a ton and he's a little bit older now, but it seems as though that's made him wiser and a little bit more mature, especially when you compare that to Piastri, who 
hasn't been really in any other cars. You know, he was at Alpine and now he's at McLaren, but he didn't get a, a ton of reps, whereas DeVries drove for a number of different cars. And I think you've just seen Piastri be a little bit aggressive throughout testing and practice. I mean, he's it, throughout all of testing, it was super clean, almost no spins, hardly anybody off track. Piastri was one of those. I think it was in practice as well. You see him trying to race Sonoda down the straight, nearly crashing into the back of Stroll coming out of the pits and then following locking up, you know, his front right tire going into turn one. And so all of those things together just lead to like, just stick to your, just run the program, man. Just run the program, do your job. And it seems like he's trying to do a little bit too much and, and it's showing. So it'll be interesting to see how that comparative performance between Sargent, uh, Piastri and, and DeVries plays out. But do you have an early, an early season prediction of, of where you think sort of perceptions will, of them will, will land at, at season end of all the rookies. Yeah. Hmm. It's so tough to say because their car performance is so variable across yeah. all three of them. Um, I tend to think Sargent's going to be the one you notice the least. Hmm. He's just kind of kind of quietly have like a decent season. Um, not going to make a lot of mistakes, but never do anything that you're like, whoa. Which is kind of the luxury, right, of being at the back. Yeah, yeah. Like, don't screw up and just don't be noticed is basically kind of the the goal. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know, man. I think I might have to reserve judgment on Piastri and DeVries at this point because their cars are just so bad. Like, I just, it's just hard to, I who knows? I, I Clearly, they both have the ability to be very good, but they could also be guys that just get chewed up in the misfortune of coming to the wrong team at the wrong time. Higher expectations than what the cars are able yeah. to deliver. You get lumped in with that. And that list of guys who didn't make it because of things that they couldn't control is a really long list. Yeah. In Formula One history that they're, you know, it just is what it is. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It'd be an interesting one to watch. <clears throat> yep. All right. Let's bring it home then. Uh, in summary, personal podium and DNF of the week. For myself, I have all things Aston Martin, right? A lo- the team, Dan Fallows, the engineering department, both drivers. Um, and then, and then beyond Aston Martin, though, you got to give a thumbs up to to Logan Sargent. I think he's been clean. He's gone about his business, and he he finished better off than than one would have expected at the at the start of the season. How about you? One word. I, I don't want to say the obvious ones because it just. You know what? Everybody's hard on race control. The FIA they don't they don't, they don't think they make quick enough decisions intra race. You know, that they're not objective enough. I got to tell you, they were laser focused in dishing out penalties (laughs) in this race. And I don't know if they're using computer programs now or they just got some like sharper people in the booth, but somebody had their eyes on Ocon. Hats off to the FIA for enforcing the rules in a very clear, objective, laser, precise manner. Uh, Two comments to that. One, I feel like a trend is developing in your sort of your sort of milk toast praise for the FIA. I don't know when you became <laughs> such a lackey for the authorities, but yeah, your your anti-government sentiment, it just makes it it makes me want to be a contrarian to some degree. <laughs> I don't want to burn the country and everything every authority down. Well, and I'm also left wondering how many penalties were were left 
unpunished because of all of the focus that was paid to Ocon throughout the <laughs> entirety of the rest. Who knows who was infringing on track limits? Yeah. Yeah, no telling. All right. How about uh, DNF of the week? Who's in Who's in your camp? I think that might have been a bit of a precursor, but... Uh, yeah, clearly Esteban Ocon. Uh, it, it's funny because not everything bad that happened to him was his fault, but it's just like a calamity of errors. I love that it all fell in his lap. Uh, did do want to give him a small amount of credit in that they did actually kind of laugh at themselves a little bit. Like, it's kind of one of those, if you don't laugh, you'd cry moments. Like, at the end of the race, they were like, yeah, this is objectively absurd that all this happened in the same race. So they did add a little levity to it, so credit to them. You'd almost rather have it be all in one race and just try to get it out of the way, because at a certain point, it's a lost cause anyway. Yeah. Just rack them up, you know? Who cares? Yep. How about you? Uh, for myself, uh, I had, well, very nearly Lance Stroll. So a lot of praise to Aston Martin across the board, but damn, he was so close to, to have an egg on his face beyond that, um, McLaren. And, and I'm, I'm left wondering, given the stark contrast between them and Aston Martin, I'm, what is the opposite of a, of a hype train? Would it be like a... (laughs) Like a shame train? I don't know. I don't know what would be what would be the alternative because whatever it is, they are riding that shit right now, and they're riding like, it hard. I like the shame train, you know, because the pain train is a thing. Mm. So I feel like the shame train should be a thing. Yeah, Dad yeah. Zach, I really didn't give that much train. too much thought, but it had a little bit of an internal rhyme, so I figured we'd roll with it. All right, looking ahead, Jetta coming up pretty quick on the heels of Bahrain. Uh, ultimately. Long, fast street circuit, wrapped in walls, dangerous as hell, and I think most importantly, a less abrasive surface than Bahrain, which leads me to believe gives a benefit to Ferrari and Mercedes. So despite all of the praise that we've heaped on Aston Martin, it is a long season. Tracks are different. Cars perform differently at different places. And I think at the very least, it's going to be an even closer race between the the other three. If not, we see a bit more of a of a traditional return to the standings with Ferrari and Mercedes ahead of Aston Martin. Uh, but the other thing I'll note is, you know, rookie struggled this week. I can't imagine it's going to get a whole lot easier in Jeddah either. That's a stressful place where all of them are going to try to be are going to be focused on avoiding crashing. Uh, and and doing, you know, racking up the bill to their team. And Hulkenberg last year, sitting in for Vettel, ran very well um, on limited notice again. So give him some, gives him a watch going into the race. What are you looking for in Jetta? I agree with everything you said. I also think, don't forget, last year, Jetta was Perez's first pole of his career. A bit of a shocking, put it on pole. So but I would say, look out for him this week. He just teased. For whatever reason, whether it's Monaco or Jetta or Baku, he just he performs on tracks where the walls are closer. I, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense, but he does. Uh, so I would bet odds on him being potentially a little closer to Max, maybe out qualifying him. And I agree with everything you said about the low deg. I think this is a race where where Le- Leclerc is most likely on pole if he doesn't hit the wall. Um, God, also a dangerous, dangerous track for your car to have an unstable rear. I mean, holy shit, dude. And sector two on that back stretch when that has that like 
little kind of high speed tweak through the walls before you hit the long straightaway and then the full left hander before the home stretch. I mean, this track is like, if you get out of sorts, you can have a very high speed collision with the wall. So yeah, if he doesn't bend it, I think Leclerc's got a great shot at Paul. And um, I agree. Ferrari may be a lot closer um, this race. So, well, and, and given your recent bout with a, a severe stomach bug, if anybody knows about an unstable rear, it's you. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for that. Giving our audience that give, image. I had to uh, give one last dig in there. The, the <clears throat> other, th- other thing to remind people of is uh, Jetta was last year also the site of our uh, our uh, inaugural uh, F1 season missile strike. So uh, geopolitical risk always adds, you know, it's a little seasoning salt for your uh, weekend uh, dish, F1 dish. So we'll see if anything like that happens again. I haven't checked in on how the war in Yemen is going, so I don't know. I don't know if anything's going to pop off again. Jeez, you're really falling out of the loop on that one, huh? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, you got a bit of time to brush up. All right, my man. Well, with that, I know. Uh, I know. Last week you chastised me for you know failing to properly promote the the show, which is why I thought we had a boisterous southerner on the show to begin with, as the uh, as the natural the natural hype man, but. I feel like it's it's time, you know, season two, we got to start being a little bit more formal with our plug. So hey man, if you're... I don't have anything to promote here except for apparently diarrhea medication, as you, <laughs> as you would allude. Would you like to be uh, would you like to do our unsolicited sponsor of the week? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you want to promote? Sorry. Go I ahead. think, well, because we, we, we haven't yet materialized in our our YouTube distribution of full length shows or clips. Uh, I think it, I think at the very least, if you've liked the show and you have not done so already, you know, please give us a rating, but really only if, it's or maybe don't, if you don't like the show, then please disregard that message in its entirety. Um, and beyond that, these are our only distribution channels so far. So uh, happy listening. <laughs> We're going to get there. I'm going back to the lab, cooking up a lot. A lot of R&D going in. You'll see the results soon. You're talking about editing. You're, you're talking about AI. I mean, I got we got high hopes here. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I ran a couple uh, couple scripts earlier this evening, and the lights in the house flickered. So we're, we're heading in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Oh, can't wait for it. All right, man. That's another one in the books. Good stuff. Always a pleasure, G. Peace. Till next time.